spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Ambien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable to me to keep the running costs this podcast going and enjoy take care bye-bye spoken label hi guys and the end spoken label back in the house on tuesday evening as well and it's been raining all day in Manchester as well so we're used to that by now lady i'm speaking to today is back across the seas again and she's got a pretty fascinating story to, but today today tell us about her book and i'm gonna let, want to keep it a surprise for you for once now rebecca for people that don't know you would you first of all like to introduce yourself tell her obviously where you come from and what started with your writing and we'll take it from there okay um i'm rebecca de harling i live in oakland california though I'm originally from St. Louis, but we've lived here since 1978. So in California, that's considered being a native um, because there's so many transplants here. Um, I, I studied Spanish language and literature um, in grad school. And one day, I, I don't know, you know, in like the early 90s, I got an idea for a book from the 17th century um, Spanish plays that were called honor plays in which a man's honor is of the utmost importance and depends a lot on the women in his life, his wife, his daughter, his sister. And if one of them does something or something happens to her, such as she is violated, then that stains his honor and a way to clean his honor is, could be to kill her. So, there are a lot of plays like that in the 17th century Spain. And it's, of course, it's never shown from the woman's point of view. So I wondered what it would be like to explore what, what options might there be for a woman who was in that situation in a very, very restricted society of 17th century Spain. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really fascinating book what you've done here. Cause I'm, I don't want to go too much straight, jump straight into it, but obviously I want people first of all to understand the journey you had with this book, because I know I know from what you've been telling me pre, obviously pre chat and also your emails. This book t- took over twenty years to write, hasn't it? <laughs> so tell people a bit more about the history. I think the history of it is very, very okay. Interesting in this book. Okay, um, I 
in the early 90s, I said to my husband, I'm very melodramatic, right? Like, I don't want to die without having at least tried to write a novel. So he's been so supportive all through this. I quit my day job, which was in hospital administration, um, and worked on the novel off and on for about six years. And a lot of self-doubt. I didn't know if it was good enough to ever go anywhere. And in those days, one did, there weren't as many options for getting one's book out as there are nowadays. So I decided, true, yeah. yeah. And I, I decided that I, I couldn't any longer justify just staying home and writing. So um, I actually went back to school again. I love school, by the way, um, and got the certificates needed to teach English as a second language uh, to adults. And I did that for 13 years. And then I retired and looked at the, you know, so now it's like 2015, looked at the books, uh, what I had written before and thought, you know, I thought I had plenty of perspective on it at this point uh, and thought, well, this, this isn't terrible. Um, I think it's worth looking at again. Um, and at that point, I would say I had, because, you know, as you know, you many, many revisions in writing, but I, I had probably maybe 70, 60, 70% of what would finally wind up in, in the final book. Um, and of course, at that point, I knew there were other options for publishing too. So I picked it up again and... Uh, for a year, I queried agents and I got, you know, people wanting to see the manuscript, but nobody willing to uh, represent me. And, you know, I, I get it. Uh, this is their livelihood. If they, they're not sure they can sell it, then they're not going to take me as a client. So I did hybrid publishing, which in which you have a real publisher, they pre-sell into the market, they, they have the designers, the, everything that you need, but you do pay the cost. So um, that's what I did. And I'm very happy with that decision. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely a labor of love. <laughs> oh yeah. It's interesting. I, I didn't know, I didn't know you go for the hybrid option with it. I know some people have gone through that before and had very, very mixed results. I know some people have done really well with it. And I know some people have absolutely really, really struggled on it. So in relation to the marketing side of it, then was it, bit more trickier to market this book because obviously like it's not a straightforward novel anyway to read in the first place by the yes. Of yes I think um <clears throat> I finally decided <clears throat> excuse me I finally decided that I was going to call it a historical fiction I mean it's a dual timeline as you know but about 70% and yes I actually counted the pages about 70% of it is historical um, and even the even the modern time is in the 1990s so um, yes it was it's it's hard in that sense you know and oftentimes in the description I say that it's a dual timeline and the structure is definitely not your typical structure so those were all things that you know perhaps made it a little bit more difficult to market but you know you got to plug along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm always a believer, John. It's like any sort of book. And it's like you're doing a book, what you've done here is you've not, you've sometimes, and I've read a review on Amazon talk with before your book, actually. And I disagreed with this, actually. So, was I like a book that's jumping all over the place to make you think, sure, you got to try and play catch up with it. So, obviously, like I said, if people are wondering, obviously, book itself, it's jumping, we said before, it's jumping to two timelines. 1660 and 1992 and I thought myself anybody has the guts to do that as a writer you've got my respect straight away 
But did you find it took a lot of plotting to get the book to this, to do operate the two different timelines? Obviously, two different worlds, really, wasn't it? Yes. It, and, you know, writing it was one thing. And, you know, writing different sections, but, but deciding how they could all fit together and where, uh, you know, my book is also atypical, um, even for a dual timeline, because the, the modern part doesn't start until about 30, about a third of the way into the book. So um, I did a lot of, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle of where are these pieces going to go? And actually when I got to the point of, okay, I think this is, this is the best I can do, or I want to have somebody else, you know, a professional person look at it. And I sent it to a developmental editor. And I was very afraid that she was going to say, you have one half of two different books here. <laughs> yeah. But luckily, luckily she didn't. She liked the structure and thought it worked. So that was a huge relief. <laughs> oh, but it was indeed. Now, what you did that was even more interesting when I was going through the book before was it, Again, it's not just a case you've actually done it in two points of view. You started bringing other points of view into the book as you went <laughs> along as well. Now, yes. Was that the plan originally to have so many points of view in the book, or were you originally just going to be two points of view? Um, I always knew that I was, so I, I'm assuming by different points of view, you're talking about the, the diaries yeah. and letters. Diaries, from, yeah. And you've got, right. you got, like, you got obviously like um, Anna's wrote, uh, I couldn't point you. I'm just, I'm just doing Game of Thrones talk here. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so many points of view, like you got Anna, Emilio, and then obviously like you go into and you got Juliana comes into it and there's Rachel. I said and Solomon right towards the end of it as well. Lizzie, Jenny, there's so many points yes. of view, and it's brilliant. <laughs> well, um yes, I would say. Did I know this from the beginning? Absolutely not. <laughs> I am definitely a seat of the pants, a pantser writer. Um, I it was, did not have a grand plan from the beginning, but it's sort of, I, I didn't know right away that basically I was, you know, I, I, I thought that I would have um, the, the young woman, obviously Juliana and, and then her aunt. And then I thought it, it would be good to have a modern person reacting um, especially since I decided to go the route of, of having a pretty much most of what we know about Juliana be in the form of her diary. So I wanted to have somebody, a modern character, Rachel, reading it and reacting to it along with the readers to sort of like anchor the reader a little bit instead of yeah, just yeah. floating around. And then the letters at the end just seemed like um, a good way to connect and uh, give that idea of sort of a line of women in the past that that we're connected to. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Like, I think what you've done is, I like, I like the term of jigsaw puzzle because I'm, I'm always a believer when I'm right, when writing myself. You don't, I, I don't like laying everything else on the plate for a reader straight away. I like it to make them work for it. And your book <laughs> certainly makes people work for it, that's for sure it is. And you got my respect for that one straight away. Now, I want to ask you as well, this on your bio, there's a bit, a bit of here about you and your sister discovering some family papers almost 20 years after you started the novel. Now, this I found really, really interesting. Tell us a bit more about this. Then. Uh, yes. After uh, my dad passed away, my mom was already in an assisted living situation. And we went through their papers and found something about my mom, which I don't, I don't feel like I can reveal because she never told us about it. And at that point, she was sort of 
she was beginning on the road to dementia. So I felt she was very vulnerable and we never asked her directly about it. So, but it really made me think about family secrets. I mean, because here was something that my mother kept for me for her entire life. And what, what is the effect of that? And that's, that's one of the, you know, things I look at in the novel. I mean, it's not just the, the secret that, that Rachel discovers, but also uh, at the very beginning, Anna reading her, her, her deceased husband's diary also learns things about him that she didn't know. And what's the effect of that? What, and I, you know, would like readers to think about, even if you keep a secret from the best of intentions, is that always the best decision? And I don't know what the answer to that is. And it's going to vary by, you know, by case, but I, I think it's something worth thinking about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I was like, I before, like there's a book that makes you think this one is, I think it's a book that I don't, I didn't know where it was going right mm -hmm. to got to the end of it like because i found myself like it's you're doing like book with over 300 years gap between the two central characters mm -hmm. you're trying to think where's it leading it's book and i like the fact you didn't go down the obvious route with it as well so now that was excellent really really good Thank stuff you. now now obviously as well i know you you've been you've been involved with some same same monthly book group haven't you so yes. tell us a bit about that then because obviously like, this looks like I get the feeling this has actually made this proved to help you with your book, didn't it? Oh, yes, it absolutely did. Yes, I joined uh, the book group in 1984. Wow. wow. Yeah, I mean, my kids were little. I, I stayed home the first few years, and I, I really needed some intellectual stimulation after going from graduate school, uh, first in Spanish language and literature, and then I, I started an MBA graduate program, and I, I, I needed something. Um, so I joined, and because it's through, um, uh, we have here a national group, the American Association of University Women, which um, has been in existence since 1860s. Um, there and so the book is through my local branch and so that gives it continuity and really some of the people a lot of the people who are still in it are people who were in it when i joined um so it's been i i love my book group obviously <laughs> staying with it all these years yeah and, incredible you know mm -hmm. it's it's worked to help me in a couple ways because we do pretty serious review we always have a, a designated reviewer for each book and they they look at the bio, they look at the criticism, we discuss whether we agree or not with, with the critics. And um, so in that way, it helps me think about, you know, think in a deep way about, about reading a, a, not, a book. And we read nonfiction also. Um, but I, I, maybe even more valuable was that I learned the lesson that not everyone likes the same books. So I went into this knowing that there are going to be people who do not like my book and that's okay. I remember that I, one of the books that I had suggested and reviewed in my book group was a Pulitzer prize winner. And most of the people in my group hated it. I won't uh, say what it was. Like um, it. So that, I you know, like not it. that my book is on that level, but it's like, okay, not everybody likes it and that's okay. That happens to all authors. So that that's that's helped me a lot. <laughs> I think you just learn as an author because I've done it myself. I remember books I wrote and bits and pieces. You just learn to have thick skin, don't you? So yes, you have to. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like if you take disappointments all that and hand in hand, you do. I 
debate whether we'd actually finish the book, let alone bring it out. <laughs> yes, that was straight yes. away. So, yeah. And um, when you were growing, was there any books that proved a big influence on you when you were writing this book over time? Oh, well, you know, um, there's certain authors that I love, Toni Morrison, Geraldine Brooks. And I was thinking the other day, I, um, I think the first book that I really remember thinking, wow, the language in this is beautiful, was actually All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, which, Ooh, you know, yeah. is, I have is read kind that. of a Western, right? Yes. Oh, I and, have read that. That was a few years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes, it was a long time ago. For me as well, uh, yeah. God, yeah. Yeah. And, but I remember thinking, you know, like stopping after certain passages and just looking at, at how he had written that and how beautiful the language was. And I, I thought that if, and that was way before I ever started, thought to start writing myself, but I thought I would like, I want to pay a lot of attention to the language if I possibly can. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's a great choice. choice. Great choice indeed. Yeah. So I've read a number, yeah. a number of his books over the years yeah. straight away. Yeah. That's so excellent. Mm -hmm. Now I've got a, I'm pretty well covered up with the questions now, but I've got a couple of funny, silly stuff we can talk to conclude <laughs> okay. with now. Because I love the cinematic quality of the book. If you ever got, this is really, this is crazy. I'm just off the cuff now. If you got off the template, it's the film. Who would you cast as the two main females in it? Oh my gosh. I know yeah. it's, it's the book's so cinematic, <laughs> that's why. Yes, I don't know. Um, I guess for Anna and Rachel, um, well, I mean, I can only think of the really famous people. I would love, you know, Emma Thompson or aim know, high, uh, aim high, <laughs> aim high, right? You know, why not? We're in dreamland here, for exactly. Sure, so. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. For the younger person, um, I would say for Juliana, I mean, though she's a little bit old for how Juliana is to begin, Emily Blunt, I'm very impressed with the, her range. She oh, can God, just yeah. do almost anything, <laughs> really. Yeah, I've loved we, so, we just watched her in the, the, the two quiet place films almost back to back last week. And that was mm -hmm, an incredible mm -hmm. performance in the first one, particularly, yeah. Yes, I've seen a few yeah, films. Well. Very, very versatile actress, yeah. But it's just like, I love the cinematic quality of the book, that's why. And it's that sort of thing. Who knows with luck? You never know, do you? So, no. well, that's enough, <laughs> definitely that. So, no, it was excellent. So, do you ever envisage yourself writing a second book? Or are you not sure yet? Yes, I'm, I'm working on a second book. Um, it's... I don't know why I decided this, but before I wrote it, I thought, uh, well, I had read the book, uh, The Weight of Ink by Rachel Cottish, and it's a dual timeline, set also in the 17th century, but in England. Um, and it's about a woman who um, writes, is very interested in philosophy and using a pseudonym, a man's name, actually winds up writing to various famous philosophers of the time. So I thought, I wanna, I wanna present a woman in the time period who is doing something unusual because there's this idea that um, we can sort of fill in the gaps in history for the people who, uh, who aren't represented, women and, and minorities, people of color. Um, and if you can get, in fact, Rachel Cottish, the woman who wrote Weight of Ink, The Weight of Ink wrote a, a an article in the Paris Review in about 2018, I think, saying that if you get all of the details correct, as much as you possibly can, it will make, and you insert a character that fits in, that is credible, then it may be that, yes, that person could have existed. 
maybe that person had to have existed. And I really liked that idea. And I think Hilary Mantel wrote something about um, that time goes through a sieve and some, some people in history get kept and some go through the sieve and get lost. And Rachel Kaddish says something like, yes, but we can catch them in our hands. And I really liked that idea of presenting a woman who um, we wouldn't necessarily think would be doing something um, at, at a particular time. So I, I decided that I wanted her to be involved in cartography. So I thought, oh, this is perfect because I wanted to keep the same time period. And I thought, well, surely Spain at that time in the 17th century was big on map making because of the you know, exploration, the new world, all of that. Well, it turns out that was wrong. The uh, focus for cartography and, and map printing at that time was Amsterdam because of the um, Dutch East Indies and Dutch West Indies companies. So um, in, in almost exactly the same time period, the 1660s in Amsterdam, the largest book of the century was written. Well, it's actually multiple volumes called the Atlas Mayor, and it's an atlas of many countries in the world, um, was printed in Amsterdam. So um, that's what I'm working on. Um, I have a woman who's going to be involved in that. Uh, it's a lot of research because uh, Spain and uh, the Dutch Republic were very different places, obviously. Yeah. So many just, ways. That's what I was wondering about, because obviously, like I said, you can tell from the first book, obviously. And have you found then the way, the way you've researched has changed between the two books? Obviously, with the first um, book taking a long time to probably schedule together. Yes. Well, of course, when I and when I first uh, started writing the first book, we didn't have an internet. So that was a very strange thing when I picked it up again. And it was almost like, well, do I need to recheck everything now that we have the internet? You know, <laughs> um, I didn't. Uh, but but there's so much more available now, of course. And so so I would say that has helped. Th that has really changed in the way I, I did the first book. Also, um, this one is not going to be dual timeline. Uh, as far as I know so far, <laughs> but just watch this space is all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's also not going to be um, based on diaries and letters like so much of the first book was. So I have to do a lot more granular kind of research. I, in the first one, I didn't talk a lot about, you know, clothes or food or transportation or things like that. I mean, there is some of all of that in there. Um, but not to the level of detail that I will need now, because if you're writing in your diary, you know, Juliana is writing about things that are important in her life, not so much, this is what I had for supper, but in uh, and, and one where it's, it's in the current time, I think I need more details like that. So in that sense, my, my research is, is changed, but I still want to try to um, take in the big picture also, as I tried to do in the first one of the view of the government at the time, what were the you know basic economic conditions in the country, and sort of work that in, um, but also have to do a lot more detail. Oh yeah, I think it's I'm always a believer. So I've done like half a dozen books myself over the years. I'm, I'm just trying to knock my internet storm again to start this, so just knocking a few <laughs> things off. Uh, right anyway, I hope that's sorted now. I know um, I'm always a believer. Every book yeah, you write, and I've done half a dozen poetry books over the years, and I've got two not. Novels on the way of one way or another, but um, I always believe each book is a reaction to the previous book. 
And like it's, have you found that yourself? And like it's, you've, I think each book is moving from A to B, aren't you? And everything changes. Yeah, yes, it, yes. It's the, I, I see what you're talking about, and I, I do feel that in some ways. It's it, not only in the subject matter. So, for example, in the in the subject matter, um, the you know religion, of course, was very important in the first book because you can't you can't talk about 17th century Spain without talking about religion and the Inquisition. Though I tried not to make it the main part of the book as it is in a lot of books about 17th century Spain. But uh, you know, the, the, the role that religion plays in the Dutch Republic is so completely different. There's so much more tolerance, but there's still sort of an official religion, but you could, you didn't have to belong to the official religion, but you needed to keep it sort of on the down low if you were, if you didn't. So it's, I mean, that's one thing that's gonna, uh, I'm definitely gonna have to explore uh, because it's an important part of the culture. Also, as far as structure goes, I think having done the dual timeline and as you, as you mentioned, as we've talked about at the beginning, it's a little bit more difficult to market if it's not some, one straightforward thing. So um, that's also part of what I, you know, I'm thinking about and doing this second novel. And also the first time I was intimidated by the idea of doing one arc that was going, one story arc that would last the whole novel, <laughs> which in part explains how I did it, why I did it the way I did it, having a dual timeline. So having one book behind me, I now I'm trying telling myself, I have the confidence to write one story arc that will go across the whole novel. So. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> Good luck with it, definitely. So, do you have any sort of ideas when this book's coming out yet, or is it still um, a work I, in progress? Uh, my publisher, I think, I think we're going to do twenty twenty three, but um, I'm really under the gun then. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Because <laughs> like I said, it's you know if you get done for twenty twenty three, it's a uh, you you up to your your certainly productivity from the first book anyway. So. <laughs> yes. For That's sure. for sure. Of it. So, have you did, did you have you done many readings on this first book? Have you pre lockdown? Um, no, because no. it was published already. Oh, no, it, it was just published. Really, yeah, it came out in during the Sorry, pandemic. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, my know, fault. Um, my fault. <laughs> I, I I found that it, it in in some ways it was fine. For example, um, my launch I did on Zoom, and so. I, I had a local bookstore who was involved. So they sort of, you know, they introduced me. They, and then I had a fellow author who interviewed me. And then I was able to have like different people do readings from the book because there's so many more people can come on Zoom. So on Zoom, I think I had about 60 people because people from all over can come, right? But if you do it in a bookstore, you're lucky to get 20, right? So in, in that way that, you know, that worked out fine. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of online things to do, you know. Yeah, that I'm trying to take advantage of. It's I think online. Tell me if you agree with this, because I've like I I run an, an open like a, a spoken word night myself, or call run one, and we were very established it for pre lockdown in England. We've just started coming out of it now. We have, but there's still lots of opportunity to do like Zoom readings now, and it's been quite an interesting experience, really. And how, how have you found it? I, I also found it interesting. And I'll tell you, I, I feel so comfortable on Zoom now. I'm a little worried about myself. You know, I'm like reluctant to go out into the real world after being able to do so think, much on Zoom. I think it does, doesn't it? Because I think it was, um, it's such been, we've all been locked up for 18 months. And yes. I was at home for a good half of it. I've just started going back to the day job now in the office past couple of weeks. And it's been, 
a major shock to your system, major shock to the system, really. And yeah. it's like it's facing people again now. It's just plain bizarre, isn't it, really? Phil? Yes, yes. Well, you yeah. think to yourself, how did you manage it before? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, you know, and you know, at, uh, here out of the, we're, you know, we're having a surge with Delta and even, you know, vaccinated people, breakthrough cases and stuff. And my book club was planning on meeting in person in September. But now I think, you know, because when we, when we planned it in June, we thought, oh, September, everything will be pretty, you know, pretty well taken care of. But of course it's not now. So I think we're going to go back to Zoom. <laughs> yeah. You might be on Zoom a little bit longer, as I would say. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so. I know, I know what you mean with that one. So, but anyway, Rebecca, great chat today good luck with the book and thank you good luck book number two let's hope for 2023 for you definitely so now thanks so much if people want to find out more about you where are the best going uh rebeccadeharling.com is my website and my link to facebook is there um and they can find out all about the books they can look at other you know things i've written blog posts guest blog posts or uh, articles and things like that so that's uh r-e-b-e-c-c-a-d-h-a-r-l-i-n-g-u-e.com <laughs> sounds good to me right so i'll make sure it gets put up in the right hook for you definitely so been brilliant today i really enjoyed today chatting with rebecca thank you so hang much Andy. hang around i do need to chat you off mic off microphone anyway so okay that's it for today guys and girls as always as don Callis says in impact wrestling Stay safe and stay over, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. Spoken Label. Spoken Label. Hi, it's Andy N. Spoken Label. Bonus feature with this podcast is a short extract from Rebecca's book, which she kindly sent over to me after the podcast was recorded. The lines between us. Stay safe and stay over, as Don Callis Impact Wrestling says, and most importantly, enjoy. Spoken Label. We're in 1661 Madrid, at the home of Anna. Her servant, Clara, has just come to tell her that Fernando from her brother's household, from Anna's brother, Sebastián, has come to say that Sebastián, as well as Juliana, his daughter, and Juliana's dueña, or governess, Silvia, have disappeared. We begin with Clara speaking. Doña Ana, come quickly. It is old Fernando. He is very upset, but none of us can make sense of what he's saying. Ana put a robe over her nightclothes, quickly followed Clara, and found Fernando, Sebastian's manservant, seated on a stool. He was quiet now, having exhausted what air was left to him after his walk from Sebastian's home. When he saw Ana, he began again. How to explain? Gone! No one saw, and then I looked for... Calm yourself, Fernando. Anna took his hand. Look at me and take slow, deep breaths. Compose yourself and begin again, please. Very slowly. What has you so agitated, my friend? Who was gone, Fernando? Both, all, Don Sebastian, the Senorita, and even my Silvia. At this last, he could contain himself no longer, and tears welled up in his eyes. Silvia and Fernando had served in the same house for over 40 years, he manifestly loving her for all of them. Though Anna believed that he had once hoped for more, 
It seemed that he had long since learned to live on the sisterly regard that was all that Sylvia was willing to offer him. Anna had often thought this hard of Sylvia, but Sylvia kept her own counsel in these things, and Sebastian's house ever esteemed a circumspect woman. Clara shook her head. Gone? Surely the ladies just went to Mass, and surely the master has no need to make an accounting to you of his whereabouts. Anna looked reprovingly at Clara for her lack of sympathy at Fernando's distress, and even in his present state, Fernando's face made it clear that he did not have to accept condescension from another servant. Please explain yourself once more, Fernando, Anna tried again. What do you mean? They are not just gone for the day, senora. There was chaos in the senorita's room, as Sylvia never would allowed, and clothes were clearly missing. And my brother's room? And Sylvia's? Don Sebastian's room is orderly, as always, and I could not see that any clothes had been taken, but he also left before the household was up and about. Sylvia's room? But here the old man could not continue, but simply wept, as though recalling what he had seen but could not describe. Well, I'm sure that there is some explanation, and that my brother will inform us of it when he returns, which will surely be today, since he at least has taken no change of attire, and we all know how fastidious he is about his appearance. Anna was certain of this aspect of her response, but it was difficult to imagine why her niece and Sylvia might have left so unexpectedly. Fernando clearly needed more reassurance than this, and Anna suggested. Perhaps Juliana and Sylvia decided to gather some old, needed clothing, and wished to distribute it to the poor. But why so early, senora, and why so secretly? Spoken, my friend.